0: We read together verses 1 through 6 of John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we come to your word now, and we pray that you would bless our time in your word, the preaching of your word, our hearing and understanding of your word. We thank you for such a clear revelation of a clear Savior. We thank you that we are in Christ, and it is our desire that we might know him more, and that we might be, by your grace, faithful to the truth as you have revealed it in Scripture. Bless this time and send your spirit to be our guide, our comforter, and our instructor today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, It is much easier to choose when you have uh, fewer options, only two options, say, instead of ten options. It's much easier to make a choice when you have two very distinct and very different things to choose from, as opposed to a multitude of things, all of which are very similar. Let me give you an example. Men, say your wife comes up to you and she says to you, what color do you want to paint the bedroom? Now you say, and think to yourself, what? I didn't need the, no, the bedroom needed to be painted, right? When I'm in the bedroom, all the times that I'm in the bedroom, the lights are off, my eyes are closed, it's all some shade of black, but if the hen wants to paint the nest, you let her paint the nest, whatever, okay. Then she lays out in front of you, say, eight color cards. And which color would you like to paint the bedroom? And to that you say, are these different colors? Because, (laughs) These all look identical to me. Is there, are there eight different colors or is there one different color, one color? But if she walks up to you and she says, what color would you like to paint the bedroom? And she gives you two options, two colors. And you say, now, honey, which? what is this? Well, that's peach, mocha, chamomile, Shaquille, latte, frappuccino, voula. It's a very interesting color, hon. And this one, what is this? Well, that's metallic gold, like a 49er helmet. (laughs) Okay? Easier choice, isn't it? Much easier choice. You examine the both of them. Having two very separate, very distinct, and very different options makes the choice easy. Satan has blinded people's minds to the truth. Not by presenting a lie that we might compare the truth with a lie. But Satan has blinded people's minds to the truth by presenting a buffet of lies. A veritable buffet of false religions, false ideologies, false ways of thinking, and falsehoods. It's not enough for him to only have one. If it were just one error that we could compare with the truth, people would be able to discern the truth. But in the presence of so many options, many of which have a germ of truth, some of which sound like the truth, some of which are very close to the truth, but just erroneous enough to 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 send somebody to hell. In the presence of such a, a, a plethora of poisons, Satan has in effect blinded the minds of people and deceived people into thinking that the truth itself cannot even be known. And so it's not uncommon for people to say, with so many options, who's to say what is true? Or even to begin to doubt the reality that anything at all is true. That in the presence of so many options... People just simply are overwhelmed with the choices and they don't even want to go through the bother of trying to figure out what is true and what is false. And so they would just simply say, maybe the truth cannot even be known. That is a grand deception of our time and that is a lie of our time. And in the midst of that fog and that uncertainty and that chaos and plethora of poisons stands the very clear words of Jesus, as relevant as they have ever been in John 14, I am the way, the truth and the life that excludes all other options all other religious leaders all other religious systems it sets christianity and jesus christ and the claims of christ apart from every other system every other philosophy every other ideology and every other option and so we are faced to con- we're forced to conclude that either jesus christ is telling the truth that he is the way the truth and the life or he is lying, and there really is multiple ways, multiple truths, and multiple lives. So we are in John chapter 14, and I know that today as, I, as, I address, as we address this issue in this text, I'm not talking to an audience full of people who need to be convinced of the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. By now, if you've been coming here for more than two or three weeks, if you didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the way, the truth, and the life, you would never tolerate this for more than a couple of weeks' time. Just enough to walk out and think that everybody else here is crazy. So I don't have to convince you that this is true doctrine. You believe this, you embrace this, and you know this. And I'm not speaking to a bunch of universalists. I'm not speaking to a bunch of agnostics or postmodern mystics or crazy people. Who chuckled? That wasn't right. Somebody chuckled. I'm not talking to a bunch of people who need to be convinced of this truth. So here's how we're going to handle this verse today. I'm not going to try and argue that there is only one way. You believe this, you've embraced this. I want to handle this truth in such a way as to see what Jesus is saying, and then to see how this contradicts the spirit of our age, and then we will draw some applications and implications from the text. So that's the closest thing to an outline that I have to offer you this morning. We're going to work our way through the text, see what Jesus says and what it means, and then compare it to the thinking of our age, and then we will kind of apply this truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So we pick it up in verse 4, and the subject matter here is the same that it has been actually since the end of chapter 13, when Jesus says in verse 4, and you know the way where I am going, we understand that he is talking about going to a place, and we've been discussing this since chapter 13, verse 33, where he said to the disciples, I'm going away, in a little while I'm going away, and you can't follow me. Now this, of course, perplexed Peter. He was willing to go anywhere with Jesus, or so he thought, and so he professed that. And then Jesus said, no, I'm going away, you're not going to be able to follow me uh you will follow me later on but right now you're not i'm going to prepare a place for you i'm going to the father's house i will come again personally return for you and i will b- draw uh, bring you to myself and there we will always be together and there you will always be with me in the father's house so now he's still talking about where he was going and the way to get where he was going and this raises thomas's question in verse 5 thomas said to him lord we do not where you know where you are going or so how let me try that again thomas said to him lord we do not know where you are going How do we know the way And Jesus said to him in verse four, you know, the way where I'm going, Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know the way where you're going. Little argument here between Thomas and Jesus, who's right. Does Thomas know where he's going and how to get there? Or does, does Thomas not know where he's going and how to get there? Thomas knew, Thomas knew the truth. He knew where Jesus was going. Jesus had been clear enough, but Thomas doesn't, he's not getting it. It's not connecting for him. Uh, I think that the, the answer to this little dilemma is to be found in the fact that Thomas really was a man who was distressed and very despondent. He had heard Jesus say, I'm going away, you can't come. I'm going to be gone for a while, I'm going to prepare a place. I'll come again and receive you. There is a traitor in your midst. He told them that back in chapter 13. So everything that Thomas has been told up to this point has, has created some despondency in Thomas, some discouragement. He's fearful, he's he's cowardly, his heart is troubled, he's in great spiritual angst. And so we might not judge Thomas just too quickly and think, well, he's kind of an idiot. He's really not thinking clearly here. I would have thought much more clearly in those circumstances. No, we wouldn't. We understand that in times of spiritual distress and anxiety, our tongues can get away with us. away with us, And we can say things and do things and doubt things that under better circumstances, we would never think or say or doubt. Right? So Thomas understands the truth. How many times has Jesus told him, you must be born again? I am the bread of life. I am the way. I am the resurrection of life. I am the light of the world. You come to the Father through me. I will raise you up. I will give you eternal life. I am the way to the Father's house. Jesus told him this over and over again, over again for three years. But at this point, Thomas is not putting two and two together. And so he is uncertain. And his question, at least at this time point, makes sense. He is not quite understanding where Jesus is going. And if you don't know where somebody's going, how do you know how to get there? If you don't know, you have to know the destination before you can type it into your GPS and figure out how to get there. But you have to have a destination point first. And this is what Thomas isn't getting. Even though really, if he were to step back under better circumstances, calm down a bit and, and sort of get out of his distressed state, he would realize it would all make sense to him. He hasn't been told this. He understands this. Thomas has one way I put it, as like a man who's searching for his keys when his keys are in his pocket. He really does know the truth, but he's not putting it all together. Have you ever done this? Where are my glasses? Kids? Where are my glasses? I knew they were here somewhere. Who took my glasses? Dad, they're on your head. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's the way Thomas is. He understands the truth. He really has heard this before. And now Jesus is saying, you know where I'm going, and you know the way where I'm going. Lord, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way where you are going. Well, this gives Jesus the opportunity to affirm for Thomas that he does indeed know the way because he himself is the way. And that brings us to verse 6. Verse 6 is familiar words. You've said them before. You've probably shared them before in presenting the gospel to somebody, especially in our postmodern world where we want to affirm to people that there is one way to heaven because there is one heaven and there is one God and there is one Savior and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. J.C. Ryle in his commentary in the Gospel of John says the fullness of these Precious words can probably never be taken in by man. He that attempts to unfold them does little more than scratch the surface of rich soil. That's true. He that attempts to unfold them does little more than scratch the surface of rich soil. And yet, scratch the surface of the rich soil and attempt to unfold them, we must. And so we're going to be inadequate even in trying to plumb the depths of this. And as I was was working my way through this, I thought, you know, I can envision three or four separate sermons just on this verse alone. And though I can envision it, You could probably envision it too. You would call it a nightmare. I would call it a delight. So we're going to do it in one sermon instead of three or four because it really is a profound and delightful text. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an exclusive statement. It is an intolerant and exclusive statement that Jesus is making. This is one of seven I am statements in John's Gospel. You remember I asked you to memorize the seven discourses and the seven miracles in John's Gospel? There are seven I am statements, and this is the sixth out of seven of them. I'll review them quickly for you. Each one of the I am statements is intended to recall to our mind that Jesus is taking the name of God upon himself. He is taking the, the name of God, I am, from Exodus chapter 3, and he's applying it to himself. So it, it is like John 8:58, 58, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He's taking the divine name, and he is saying, that is my name. I am the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. I am the God who delivered your people from Israel. I am the God who has revealed himself in Genesis through the book of Malachi, he is that God. He's taking the name of God to himself. But then when he adds a qualifier to it, he is taking the name of God to himself and he is filling it in with some attribute, some analogy that they could connect to that name of God. And he is again reminding them that as that God, he is this thing as well. So he says, for instance, in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And each one of these I am statements is connected to life in the context. John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7, I am the door of the sheep. Right? You have to come into me to have life as the sheep. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Those are the first five. This is the sixth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the seventh one is found in the next chapter in John 15, where he says, I am the true vine. There's something also very interesting in this, in this passage. Not only does Jesus, is this one of Jesus's I am statements, but he does something here in the text, which is kind of unique. It would strike the ear of a Greek reader differently than it would strike the ear of an English reader. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That doesn't strike us as odd to hear that. But there's something repeated there three times that would be very odd to those who had originally heard it. And that is the repetition of the definite article, the. And it's not just a feature of the English text to make it read well. It is a feature of the Greek text as well. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Normally, he would just have said, I am the way, truth, and life. And he wouldn't have repeated the definite article. But the definite article is repeated for a reason. And commentators have spilt a lot of ink trying to figure out why is it that he repeated the definite article. I think it is for this reason. He is trying to make the most exclusive claim imaginable in the most emphatic language possible. Trying to make the most exclusive claim imaginable that he is the way, the truth, the life, in the most emphatic language possible. So it would strike them as odd to hear the repeated definite article, though it doesn't sound odd to us. It would have sounded odd to them. And the purpose is to emphasize that he is the and there is no other. In this statement, he is excluding all competitors. He has no competitors because he has no peers. He is excluding all other options but himself. When he says that there is one way, the way, and he is it, There is one truth, the truth, and he is it. And there is one life, the life, and he is it. All right? The most exclusive claim possible in the most emphatic language possible. So let's take each one of these three. The way, the truth, and the life. We'll work our way through all three of these. First, he is the way. The way. A way is, the word way there was used to refer to something that connected two people or two destinations. So, in this context, we would put it this way. He is the way to the Father's house that He has described in the previous two verses, or the previous few verses. He is the way to the Father's house. He is the way to heaven. He is the way to eternal life. He is the way to the place that is prepared for them. He is the way to forgiveness. He is the way to approach God. He is what connects earth to heaven and allows us to go from earth to heaven when we leave this life. He is the way to approach the Father in spirit. He is the way. He is the the avenue. He's the road that we must take. And this type of exclusive language, this is not the first time that the idea of Jesus being the way has been brought up in the Gospel of John. You remember back, back in John chapter 10? When Jesus said in John 10, verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And even in the analogy that he uses in John chapter 10, do you remember? It was the high walls of a sheepfold and there was one door. And Jesus saying, I am that one door. And if you don't come in through that door, you are what? A robber or a thief. And you have come to kill, steal, and to destroy. But those who, those who are the genuine or the true shepherd come in through that door. He is the true shepherd, and he is the door into the sheepfold. So the path to life is through that one door. Not over a wall, not some other avenue, no other back door, one door, and he is it. And even in that analogy, he was giving to us the, his exclusive claims. There are No competitors, for he has no peers. So he is the way. is the way to God, and he is the truth, and he is the life. Uh, It is an exclusive claim that he's making, and he is intending to shut out all other teachings, all other teachers, all other religious philosophies, for he is the way. Christianity was known as the way in the early church. In fact, it was so much a, a feature of the early apostles' preaching, calling Jesus the way and Christianity the way to God, that they got the nickname, The Way. Acts chapter 9, verse 22, I think it is. And several times in the book of Acts, you see Paul referencing how he persecuted The Way. That was what they called Christians. They didn't call it Christianity. They called them The Way. Why? Because Christians said, we have The Way and we worship The Way. The one who is The Way, that's the one we worship. They were known as The Way. I think there's a cult called The Way, isn't there? Didn't somebody adopt that language at one point? A false teaching group? Just a little close to the truth right another error close to the truth that satan puts out there to deceive people well jesus is the way one way one god one way to god the man christ jesus second he is the truth not a truth not one possible truth among many not one source of truth not one particular revelation of truth but he is the truth in other words there is one truth and guess what he is it Truth is also a major theme of the Gospel of John. Let me give you a couple of other examples from the Gospel of John. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1.17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John 8.32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. In John 8.44-45, and 45, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him whenever he speaks a lie he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of liars but i because i speak the truth you do not believe me so truth is a major theme in john's gospel and that's not all the references there are dozens dozens of references to truth in john's gospel so this is a major theme and now jesus is sort of wrapping that all of up and he's saying the truth that i've been telling you the truth that i've been speaking about i am that truth to cut yourself off from Jesus Christ, to not believe in Him, to not embrace Him, is to cut yourself off from the only source of truth that exists. Now, does this mean that an unbeliever cannot know that 2 plus 2 equals 4? Can an unbeliever, somebody who rejects the gospel, can they know true things? They can, but it's not certain true things that Jesus is speaking of here. An unbeliever can know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, But an unbeliever does not know the God who created a universe in which 2 plus 2 always equals 4. They live in our universe with our world around them created by our God in which things that are true are true only because Christ is. But they cannot explain to you why the laws of logic exist, why the laws of logic work the way that they do, why the laws of math work the way that they do, why 2 plus 2 is always 4. Why do I assume certain things to be true all of the time? They can't explain any of that to you because they have cut themselves off from the one true God. So they do not know the truth about who God is, about eternity, about philosophy, about religion, about eternal life, about the hereafter. They know the truth about none of those things. The unbeliever doesn't. Do you realize that if you take the greatest philosopher that the world has ever produced, the greatest intellect, the greatest mind, They do nothing but grope in darkness because they do not have the truth and they do not understand the truth. They, in the words of Romans 1, profess to be wise, but they are fools because they reject the truth. But if you take the simplest believer who understands God's word with the simplest of childlike faith, that person understands and knows more truth and more true things about the function and purpose of this universe and the meaning of life than Stephen Hawking ever dared to know. They are grander in their intellect, grander in their understanding, and they understand the truth because they have the truth, which is in Jesus Christ. But the one who shuts himself off from Christ knows none of that. There is one truth, and he is it. He is the way, he is the truth, and third, he is the life. And of course, John's gospel was written that we might believe and that believing we might have life. Jesus is saying that there is one source of life, one source of eternal life, and he's talking here about Uh, not only physical life, but also spiritual life. Actually, I would say primarily spiritual life because that's really what is in view when he is talking about a life in John's gospel. It is spiritual life, eternal life. And there's only one source to that. Jesus is not himself one who has received life from another. He has, in John chapter 5, verse 21, life in himself. And so just as the Father uh, has life in himself, so also does the Son have life in himself. And the Father can give life, and the Son gives life to whomever he wills. He is the source of life and the provider of life and the essence of life. And there is no spiritual life in any other religious system or philosophy or religious leader on the planet ever. It resides solely and only in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And you put all of those things together and you sum all of them up and you say, what is John talking about? He is really summing up everything that he has said For 14 chapters. He's been talking about Jesus being the way, Jesus being the truth, and Jesus being the life. And suddenly we realize, if you haven't already, that John is really repeating himself without really repeating himself. He's only been banging one drum all the way through this gospel. And it is this, if you have Jesus, you have eternal life. If you do not have Jesus, you do not have eternal life. He's summing up all of the teachings from these 14 chapters into this one statement, and he is boiling it down. Second, John here is describing the multifaceted work of Jesus like a like a precious jewel that you hold in your hands and you look at it in the light and you you see the beauty and the the glory and the color there and the and and the majesty of that precious gem, and then you give it just a little bit of a turn and you look at the very same jewel from a completely different angle and and it opens up for you when the light shines on it from a different angle it opens up for you a whole new set of of visual beauties and and, and glories, and so it is with Christ. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And these are just different aspects of His character. He's the light of the world, He's the bread of life, He's the resurrection life, He's the true vine. He's all of that and so much more. And you kind of get the sense that Jesus could have gone on and on with giving analogies and basically summing up all things in Himself, but He doesn't. He gives us those three. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so this answers Thomas' question. We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? I'm the way, Thomas. That's what I've been telling you for three years. I'm the way. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, resurrection of life, and the way to the Father's house. This is what he's been telling him for three years, that he is the way, and there is no other. And this is the exclusive nature of that claim. It is either true or it is false. Now, that's the text, and that's the meaning of it. Oh, one other thing. We've got to look at the second half of that statement. That's the negative side of it. The first half is positive. The second half is negative. I'm the way, the truth, and life. That's the positive statement. Now, the negative statement, no man can come unto the Father except through me. That's the negative side of it. That's the exclusive nature of it. Positively stated, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Negatively stated, nobody can come to God except through him. Because that is the same truth stated two different ways. Positively and negatively. So now we ask, how does this sort of apply to the spirit of our age? How does this contrast with the, the reality of the world in which we live? This is either true or it is false. If it's false, then you're all a bunch of fools. And, and I'm, I'm the chief of the fools. Either Jesus, what Jesus is saying is true, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, or he's lying. If he's lying, you've placed your faith, and it's an ill-placed faith. But if what he is saying is true, then everything else is false. Because this statement places Christ and Christianity and the claims of the Bible up against the claims of everything else. There is the truth, and then there is everything else. In the spirit of our age, the day in which we live, people deny that you can even know truth. Very few people that you talk to today will say, unless you're talking to people here in this room, very few people today, if you just walk out on the streets, will affirm that even truth can be known. Most people we say, we can't even know what the truth is. And I can't even be certain that I know anything is true if I know that anything at all is true. Of those small fraction of people who actually believe that truth can be known, only a small fraction of them would believe that That we can actually discover the truth. Somebody might say, I believe that there is a truth, but I don't think we can know it. Of those who believe that there is a truth, a small fraction believe we can know it. Of those who believe that we can know it, only a small fraction of those believe that they have actually found it. And into that chaos speaks the Christian who says to the culture and to the world, there is one God, one word from God. One mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. One heaven and one truth and one way to get to heaven and one way to understand truth. In a culture that embraces everything and in a culture that says you can't know the truth. And so you know what they say? You are intolerant and exclusivistic and narrow minded and bigoted. Who are you to think that you have discovered the truth and that everybody else is wrong? Who are you to say that you know what the truth is and you know that everybody else is wrong? You can't know any of this for certain. You are intolerant and exclusivistic. Is that a true statement? Do you think Jesus was inclusive or exclusive? Do you think he was inclusive with error and false teaching Sin. Do you think he was tolerant of wickedness and sin and error? Or do you think he was intolerant concerning those things? I think he was very intolerant concerning those things. And some of this postmodern nonsense, the day in which we live, it says you have your truth and I have my truth and what's true for you is not necessarily true for me. And so we need to include all views of truth and all approaches to truth and recognize that we're all right, even though we can say two totally contradictory things that we are both right because you have your truth and I have my truth and I've discovered my way and I'm discovering myself and I'm on my path and you're on your path and that's good and we'll just include and and embrace everything as legitimate. All views are equal. And into that malaise steps the claim of Scripture that not all views are equal. There's one truth and there's one way and there's one life and it's to be found in Jesus Christ. And some of this postmodern nonsense has crept its way into the church and I'll give you a couple examples of it. This claim by Jesus obviously stands contrary to the teaching of universalism. Universalism is the belief that everybody gets saved in the end. Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins, uh, emergent liberal tried to make the case in his book that ultimately love trumps doctrine and love trumps truth and love trumps wrath and love trumps everything. In the end, love wins. So whether you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or whatever it is, in the end, everybody goes to heaven because God's loving. And of course, if God is loving, he wouldn't send anybody to hell. And in the end... Love wins. That's universalism. Now universalism kind of gets a bad name and so they've sort of retaken universalism taken re- universalism and repackaged it and now it's kind of t- uh, taught as something called an anonymous Christian view. Have you heard the anonymous Christian view? The anonymous Christian view is yes, we believe that there's only one path to heaven and it's through Jesus, but that everybody eventually goes through that one path. That's different than universalism where there's all kinds of paths and everybody gets there in the end. The anonymous Christian view says there's only one path and it's Jesus. But even though the Muslim may worship Allah, they don't call Him Jesus, they don't recognize this Jesus, but God sees His heart, and ultimately He's really worshiping Jesus, and God knows that. So He doesn't know He's a Christian. Nobody else knows He's a Christian. He's so anonymous as a Christian that He doesn't even know He is one. And But He'll eventually get to heaven through Jesus, just that He doesn't know that He's actually getting there through Jesus. Now, Rick Warren has danced around with this a little bit. Even Billy Graham has danced around with the anonymous Christian view a little bit. Roman Catholicism and this pope keeps people up at night trying to spin his words and make them sound very orthodox. He has danced around with the anonymous Christian view. It's become very fashionable as of late because the last thing we ever want to do as Christians is make people feel like we're excluding them or offending them, right? I mean, that's all that we're about is making people feel included and, and not excluded and tolerated. And so some people would rather be unfaithful to the truth than to be viewed as intolerant of their view. That's the anonymous Christian view. And then there is the view, of course, that this answers, that says that uh, all ways are equal and I'm on my path and you're on your path. And so truth is just a matter of personal experience. It's not something that is revealed to us by God and it's something that all of us are discovering as we work our way and sort of fumble our way through life. Man, apart from all of that, Jesus stands as clear as a bell, doesn't he? I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, people object to that and they say, how, how is it fair... That God would provide only one path that just doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem fair to the Muslims, it doesn't seem fair to the Jews, it doesn't seem fair to the Buddhists or the Hindus or the atheists, it doesn't seem fair that He would only provide one path. You know what it is fair, and you know why it's fair because it's the one path that's available to them if they will embrace it, but they won't that there's only they only need one path if one path is adequate if one bridge will get you across the thing, why build more bridges? There's no need for more bridges. If one bridge is sufficient to do the job, you need one bridge. And if the bridge is open to everybody to cross, then it is open to everyone to cross. Anybody can cross it. So it is the one bridge that is sufficient for Jews or Gentiles, for anybody who will come to him in repentance of faith. It is a sufficient. It is sufficient. And so God only has to provide one path. Besides, if God had provided two, not that he has, he hasn't, but if God had provided two paths, you know what the objection would be? Why only two? Why not three? And if God had provided three, you know what they would object? Why only three? Why not four? Because ultimately it doesn't matter what the path is or how many of them are. The unbeliever will suppress the truth and unrighteousness and turn from the truth. And he ultimately does not want whatever it is that God has provided for him. Now, Some people say that this claim is awfully exclusivistic and intolerant. Is that true or false? It is a true statement. But see, this is not my claim. It's not my claim. This is Christ's claim. So ultimately all we're doing is being faithful to him. If he says he's the way, the truth, and the life, then we simply affirm what Christ himself has already said. That doesn't fly in today's world. They they don't like exclusive stuff like this. They don't don't like stuff that sounds intolerant. We live in a world, this is as an aside, it is maddening to live among people who, 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 who uh, who embrace tolerance as the highest virtue. It's maddening to live in that world where if you say anything that sounds even remotely intolerant, you're labeled a bigot and a heretic and intolerant and exclusivistic and all those horrible words. But it's also very fun. Because it is the easiest deck of cards to play back on them. You make me feel awfully excluded by not including me. You, you're saying that all views are equal, except for my view. That's not equal. That's lesser. Right? Everybody's right except me. I'm wrong. And, and that's what that's, that's their card that they play. It's judgmental to be judgmental. And so they judge you. They judge you for being judgmental. They They will not tolerate your intolerance. It's the most insane thing to live in a world like that. They they cannot get away from making exclusive claims and being intolerant of something. Because those who claim to be tolerant of everything ultimately are only tolerant of one thing, and that is the people who view things exactly the way that they view them. People who embrace tolerance as the highest virtue are most of the time the most intolerant people you have ever met toward anything that they disagree with. All right, so what is the application of this? That's the spirit in which we live. We understand what the truth is, what the text teaches. We understand how this sort of applies to the spirit of the age in which we live. And then third, what are the applications of this of this truth? Let me offer to you a couple. First of all, to deny this is utter unfaithfulness and disobedience to the commands of Christ. To deny this is utter unfaithfulness and disobedience. Further, to mask this truth, to try and sugarcoat it, to try and make it palatable, to, to walk around it, to dance around it, to try and obscure it in any way in order to present the gospel to people in a non-offensive way is not the gospel at all. And that seems to be the spirit of our age as well. Go ahead and try and present the gospel, but do so in a way that doesn't make people feel as if they are excluded from God's kingdom if they don't embrace Jesus. That's not the gospel. This is a necessary component of it. People must understand that there is only one way to forgiveness. There's only one way to have eternal life. And if you if you don't present this truth, that you must flee to Christ and Christ alone, as part of the message, you have been unfaithful to the gospel itself. Also, to give assurance to anybody who has not embraced Christ, to give any kind of assurance to them that they may see eternal life, having turned from Christ, is to lead them down the primrose path to destruction and to rob God of His glory. It is to lead them to a Christless eternity. We must never do anything to compromise or to obscure this truth. And that includes joining forces with people who would disagree with us, even though the cause may be great. You say we want to join forces with this group and that group because we have common cause in our fight against X, fill in the blank, whatever it is abortion agenda, the homosexual agenda, the political agenda, whatever it is. We're going to join forces with these people. We don't agree on the gospel. They have a different Jesus, a different salvational works for righteousness, a totally different faith, no view of truth, but we're going to join forces with them in order to accomplish this great truth. And in doing that, we obscure the reality and the truthfulness of this text. We can never, we can be co-belligerents with them. That means we stand against something, and they may stand against something with us but we don't link arms and join forces as if we are going to accomplish something great because in denying the gospel and obscuring the truth of this verse and the reality of this, we do more harm than we could ever do good. Because to obscure the gospel or to deny the gospel or to obscure this truth does more harm than any of the ills that we might fight against. We must never do anything to obscure or sacrifice this great truth that Jesus Christ is the only way. And we must proclaim that loudly. People will hate you. People will call you names. People will castigate you. They'll reject you. They will cast you out. They did this to early, early Christians. They hated the early Christians because they would not admit any other way. They hated the early Christians because they would not confess Caesar as Lord. They hated the early Christians because they proclaimed this truth that salvation is found in no other name among under heaven, may, my boat you must be saved, but the name of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so they hated Christians for that. So may God give us the grace To boldly and confidently proclaim this truth, that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, to the glory of his matchless name. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the blessing of being able to reflect upon these familiar words in the passage of Scripture that we've looked at. We're so thankful that you have made the truth known to us. We don't know the truth because we have reasoned our way to it or because we have discovered it by some of our own doing, but you have made it known to us. You have revealed it to us. and It is in the pages of Scripture. We thank you for a sufficient Savior whose blood and whose sacrifice on the cross atones sufficiently for the sins of all who will place their faith in him. We thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in drawing us to your Son and in bringing us to salvation. We thank you for the truth and the clarity of your word, and we pray that you would indeed give us boldness and confidence to proclaim this message and to never compromise on it and to never come close to being ashamed of it. May we we be like Paul and say, We are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for the just shall live by faith. We thank you for that faith that you have given to us, by which we are justified before you. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.